Our two scripture passages this morning come from 2 Corinthians, the first from chapter 8, verses 7 through 15, and the second from chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's good to see so many of you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you might be surprised to see that we've kind of taken a step back from what we've been doing for a while, uh, going through the book of Romans kind of systematically. And we're going to take just a couple of weeks, probably for the next uh, today and then the next two until school gets out, uh, because we feel like uh, we are entering a, a very important uh, and we hope a very sweet time for our church. Um, we think, uh, we, we sense the spirit beginning to blow uh, his wind on us as a people, and uh, so the analogy we've been using is we want to make sure that we've set our sails to, to catch the wind. Uh, the Bible says that we can't control where God's Spirit moves and how He blows. It goes wherever it wants, uh, but we can miss it, and so we need to be ready. And so we want to take a few things, just a, a couple of topics to, to kind of prepare us and get ourselves ready as a church for what we think God is about to do for us. And so you probably not surprised uh, to learn that this morning we want to talk about uh, money, which stinks, doesn't it? Believe me, it's way uh, more uncomfortable for me than it is for you. Uh, and typically when, when pastors uh, start talking about money, people get really nervous, and I would tell you you should, probably. 
because it's hard for us to not be full of ulterior motives, and I hope that's not true for me as well. It's interesting to me that when Paul, when Paul, if you look there, where is it in verse uh, 7, uh, he says, he's, he knows he's transitioning and talking to these people about money, and he says, as you, he's, he, first of all, he flatters them. He says, as you excel in all things, in this and this and this, and then notice the phrase, and in our love for you. <laughs> so Paul's saying, hey, look, before I talk to you about these hard things, I want you to know I love you. I think you're great. But we got some things we got to talk about. And that's what I would say to you this morning, too. You're an incredibly generous church, uh, and I love you dearly. And uh, you really are a joy to pastor, but we do have some things we need to talk about. Now, it's going to be a little different this morning. Uh, if you've not been, uh, if, well, if you're, it's not going to be what we're used to. i got to do a little more teaching. Uh, and so there's just going to be a different feel to the sermon, and be aware of that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, and you think, oh, see, this is why I don't come to church. Uh, I would tell you, and I think I'm going to say in a minute, uh, in 10 years, almost 10 years as a church, this is the first time in 10 years that we've kind of taken time away from whatever we're doing to, to discuss these things, which is a weakness and not a strength. And so that's why we're trying to do that this morning, okay? So stick with me uh, as we go through this passage and talk about this subject. And I really, uh, I really felt compelled to do this for a number of different reasons. Six reasons that I think we ought to do that, uh, do this this morning, and, and here they are, just, just really rattling them off. First, uh, what you believe about money is an important part of discipleship to Jesus. It is a measure of a church's health. It's one measure. It's not, the, you know, it's not the measure. It is one measure to say, hey, you know, uh, we have money we need, and that's good, and God's moving, and so it's, that, that's important. Secondly, number two, I think we ought to take some time to talk about this because it really is a blind spot especially for uh, middle and upper class conservative people. I mean, if you think about the way Christians engage in culture, we come down pretty hard on sexual immorality and we tend to wink at greed. And it can't be because of what we read in the Bible because in truth, Jesus had a lot more to say about money than he did about sex. And so sometimes I think the critique that the left levels against Christians has merit, that there's some inconsistency. Third reason I think we ought to talk about it is that we don't talk about it much in, in church and in our church, and I don't think it's a wise strategy, partly because we haven't had to, to be honest, partly because of the critique I was mentioning that's leveled at pastors, and so it's easier just to stay away from it, and, and, and you know, if you've been here for any time, you know we don't even take an offering. Uh, did you know that? Did y'all realize that? There are boxes that we leave there for you, and because we just never, at the beginning, we just said we don't want to make this a big deal. We want to be a place that's inviting to non-Christians, and a lot of non-Christians think, what churches want is their money and not them, and so we just made a decision to do that. But, but what's happened is this has created a culture where we hardly ever talk about these things, and our, our elders are concerned about that, and so we thought it would be good to take some time uh, to, to stop and just talk uh, together about this. This is an act of repentance on my part and on our part. Uh, fourth reason I think we ought to talk about this is if you're, a re- if you're a member of Redeemer, then you've taken vows in your membership vows to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability, and part of that means helping financially. And so we need to have a sense of expectations of what that means for us. Fifth, uh, and this is really true, uh, one of the, the fifth reason I think we should take some time to talk about it is, is we have had a, we've had a slow, a slow beginning uh, to 2018 financially. Uh, and that's a, that's a different thing for our church. It's not, it's not ever been the case really in the past. Uh, and, and so we just want to make you aware of that. We'd ask you to pray. Uh, we'd ask you to make it a regular part of the way you pray for our church, that we would uh, have all of the resources that we need. And we'd ask that you help where you can. If you've not contributed yet this year and you say, oh, I've been meaning to do that, now would be a great time to get started. And we would really appreciate that and, and we could use the help. Because the sixth reason is, 
is that we have, uh, I've been telling you, we've made a couple of new hires. We've hired a director of worship, uh, Patrick and Molly Lockwood, who uh, are, he's, he's from Winter Haven. They live in Nashville now. They'll be coming to join us in the next few weeks. And uh, I think I've said, we've also hired a church planning apprentice uh, that will hopefully be coming, uh, well, he will be coming in the next six weeks or so to, to lead us in another effort to plant a church in another part of town. Now, you may say, now, wait a minute, you just said we have a slow start to the, to the year and we're making hires. Well, our leaders are really men to live by faith, but also we have some things laid aside to help with some of that. We just want to make you aware of all of that, that there are some really great things happening in our church. Amen. We believe that, and we want to be ready uh, to follow uh, wherever the Spirit would lead us. And part of that is, is we need to we need to be uh, ready in this area of our lives because uh, what the statistics now tell us is that um, Americans, on average, give about two percent of their income to charitable causes. Uh, Christians, Christians, it's a whopping. I mean, you know, Christians do way better. It's two point five percent. Now get this, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. So people of faith, on average today, give less with all the abundance that we have in our, in our society than they did during the Great Depression. Think about that. 37% of people who, who attend church don't give anything at all to the church they attend. And so there's just some... There's just some things that we, you know, there's some real, uh, real issues that we have to confront, and I hope for the grace, Paul talks about grace here, I hope for the grace for us to be honest with one another as we do that, okay? Now, notice, I'm going to use the word uh, generosity here, not, not stewardship, not um, giving, not, not obedience to a rule. I'm going to say that the standard for Christians and money is generosity. And I'm going to use that word intentionally because it carries with it the idea of abundance and overflowing. And I, and I really uh, was struck by this in the text. I think I get this from the text, that everything the Bible has to say about money is rooted in the generosity of God, who is abundant and overflowing in all of his dealings with us. So 2 Corinthians 9, 8, as we've already uh, made mention of, is one of the best examples. And we're going to have to come back, I think, to the verse in a, in a little bit. But 2 Corinthians 9, 8, look there again. Uh, it says, and God is able... To make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Isn't that an amazing verse? There, there is no sum with our Father in heaven. That's what that teaches. That every gra- every, even the grass is clothed with splendor and glory, according to Matthew 6. And so you see phrases uh, in this passage, in both of these chapters... Uh, like verse 14 of chapter 8, abundance. Uh, 8 7 says, so bountifully. Uh, 8 7 again, uh, excuse me, not 8 7, 9 7 again, that, that not reluctantly but cheerfully. And then uh, 9 11, generous in every way. So there's this call to something more than just, you know, here's a, here's a rule I'm trying to follow and I'm going to make sure I do this or, or things might not go well for me. No, there's this sense of, of overflowing in abundance. First, God towards us. And then because of God's overflowing abundance towards us, our overflowing abundance in, in all of our lives, not just money, by the way, in our time and the way we uh, invest our, our uh, talents and our gifts and, and relationally and this sort of thing, that we are to be people that really, if there's one thing that should characterize people uh, who believe in the God who is by definition generous, it would be that they would be generous. And so we want to talk about that this morning, okay? And we want to look at it along four lines. The first thing we want to do is we want to see the axes of generosity, uh, then we want to talk about the mechanics of it. 
Paul mentions, and we want to mention to you, the grace behind it, that there's really grace driving what he has to say to us here. And then lastly, we want to talk about well, where's the power uh, to do what Paul calls the church to do here come from. So the, the axes, the mechanics, the grace, and the power uh, for generosity. We're just going to walk through the text along those headings, okay? So first, let's look at, uh, at the axes of generosity. What do I mean by that? Well, in Galatians, Paul summarizes the Christian life. He says, if you really want to boil it down, here's what it is. It's faith energizing love. That's what obedience is. Faith energizing love. So how is generosity an expression of both faith, our relationship with God, and love, our relationship with one another? So the vertical and the, and the horizontal axes. So let's start with the vertical axis first. And to say that Christian ethics always begins with God. Behavior is connected to belief. So everything we do is an expression of, of faith, of what we believe about who God is and, and how he relates to us. Now, I've already said that our generosity begins with God's generosity to us, right? But I want you to see the way Paul labors to show the correspondence between how God relates to us and how we then relate to other people. So look at uh, chapter 9, verse 8. And and there Paul writes to the church, he says, God makes all grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work. Okay, it's the same word. So there's an echo of language here, and that's, that's the important thing to notice. God's grace abounding to you causes you to abound. There's a correspondence. The one is never without the other. The one produces the other. So as, as God, as you see God abounding to you in mercy and love and, and generosity, it causes you to begin to abound, uh, not just in the way you use your money, but he says in every, every good work, okay? But that's not the only place we see this kind of thing here. In in verse 11 of chapter 9, it says that he enriches in every way so that you can become generous in every way. And the translation is unfortunate there because it really, uh, it's translated as two different words, but it really is the same word. Again, there's an echo of language, and that's the important thing. How God, what God does to us is echoed in the way that we then work that out into the way that we live towards other people. So um, it's a different form of the same root there. God enriches. He blesses so that we can become a blessing in every way. What God does for us makes its way into us. See what I'm saying? What God does for you becomes a part of what happens in you and through you to other people. So his generosity makes us generous. If we're not generous, then it's because uh, we don't believe he is. If we store up treasures on earth and not in heaven because we're anxious, which is what Matthew 6 is all about... It is because, according to Jesus there, we have little faith. We display our faith in our generosity. And we also help others to faith through our generosity, the text says. So one of the ways, one of the ways that God intends for the city of Winter Haven to know how great he is is to see the generosity of his people and to say, wow, what is that? The God they serve must be great if that's the way they live. So we express our faith and we help other people to faith. So your money and your material possessions are from God and they're for God. They belong to him. Uh, and so give glory, give to glorify God. Give to give him glory. When you're generous, you, you tell him and you tell the world that he is much better than money or anything money can buy. You say, I, I, I'm giving because I trust you more than my account balance. And when you're generous, this kind of generous, which we're going to see, the result is that others give him thanks. That's 9-11. Paul says if you do this, what's going to happen is through us, it's going to result in thanksgiving to God. 
people are going to see and they're going to say, wow, God, he must, that, that God must be amazing. And that really, that really makes them happy. So the way we give, you know, giving is a strategy for loving God, for showing our faith in God. But then let's talk about the horizontal axis as well. So generosity is not just an expression of faith, according to what Paul writes here. It's also an expression of love. And Paul says this very thing. Uh, look at verse 8 of chapter 8. I know we're skipping around. It's a lot of material. I'm trying to condense through a, a line of thought as we go throughout the passage. He says, I say, that not, say this not as a command, but to prove that your love is genuine. So he's saying, I'm calling you to do this because it really is what love requires of you. So everything God does for you, he means to do through you. Let me say that again. Everything God does for you, he means to do through you. Every good and perfect gift he brings into your life comes to you on its way to someone else. I forget who said that, but it's always stuck with me. So uh, no credit for the actual quote. But no, it didn't come from me. I mean, I didn't make that up. I stole that from somebody. <clears throat> Go all the way back to Genesis. And uh, when God entered covenant with Abraham, he said this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's a familiar passage. Remember what the Lord said? He said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. You, Abraham, are going to be the channel through which all of my love and my salvation and my healing power is going to come into the whole world. And we are the children of Abraham. And so the text in 2 Corinthians 8 9 promises that God will work to bless us, but it also shows us why. It's important to know that you stand in, if your faith is in Jesus, you stand in unique relationship to the God of the universe, but there's also a reason why he relates and acts towards you the way that he does. Uh, look, uh, look down at the text in verse 11. It says, God supplies and multiplies your seed. It's an amazing language. It's just amazing language there. It, uh, literally in the Greek, it means it's the word choreography. God choreographs the different parts of your life to cause you to an experience and abundance and, uh, and um, more than you need. Why, though? For what? Well, we're told for, for sowing, verse 10, so that, you, so that you put back into the ground. Everything God gives you, you put it back into the ground. And then in verse 11, he picks up the same idea, and he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And that's really a weak translation there. It literally means you are enriched in every way toward generosity in everything. You are enriched, you are blessed in every way, into being a blessing through which God, by, uh, you know, through the stuff God's given you. So the purpose of God's blessing in your life is to make you a blessing to others. You're not a receptacle for God's generosity. That's that's false teaching. That's heresy. You are not a receptacle for God's generosity. You're a channel. And God is not generous to you. He's generous through you. It's important to know the difference. Not only with money, with love, with forgiveness, with all those kinds of things. Every, every good thing comes to you on its way to somebody else. So your money and your material possessions are from God and they're for others. They belong to others. Paul has some really radical things to say in these verses, I'll be honest. He imagines a supernaturally provided for community of people where at any given moment, one's plenty makes up for another's lack. And you give to your own hurt because you know if you ever lack, there will be someone with plenty to help you. That's 8 verses 13 through 15. Paul envisions, look there, I mean, it really is amazing. A church, he envisions the church as a community with haves and have-nots, 
He quotes from Exodus 16, the whole manna incident, and he says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And so there was this principle that uh, if you have an abundance, you should assume that it's for the sake of everyone having enough and not you having more than you need. Okay, that's a big statement. Because it's this manna, right? So whatever everyone had came from God. They weren't foraging around in the desert and somebody found a little piece of I mean, it came down, literally. They all stood there, you know, every morning. Can you imagine every morning standing there with your thing and waiting for the Lord to, you know, to bring the manna and you gather it up. And some gathered more and some gathered less. But if you have an abundance, what Paul's saying from those verses is you should assume that you have abundance for the sake of everyone having enough and not for the sake of you having more than you need. That doesn't sound very American. It isn't. And I would just say, if you have issue with it, please don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what Paul's saying. I mean, American evangelical churches bear very little resemblance to what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians. And that's a problem. I don't have any answers. I guess my only answer would be small steps. If we could take a few small steps towards this, I think God would be over the moon excited about our repentance. I know I would. And so we see the axes. So what we do with, what we do with money is an expression of our faith. It's also an expression and an opportunity for love. But secondly, let's, let's go a little deeper and let's, let's see some of the mechanics. Let's talk about how this works a little bit. And for that, we need some context. So this is in 2 Corinthians uh, so let's talk about Corinth for a minute. And Corinth was a, a merchant city. It was a financial center in the ancient world, much like New York City today. It was a place where people went to make it. And so the Corinthian church is, uh, was a church we know that was full of very talented, very successful, and presumably very wealthy people. Uh, and, and, and so you get Paul saying in verse 7 of chapter 8, as you excel in everything, he says, in faith and speech and all earnestness, see that you excel in this too. So generosity... Uh, is a spiritual gift. Uh, some people, the way they serve the church is to make a bunch of money and then be generous. That is, that is, their, that is their unique, spirit-filled, God-given way of, of helping the cause of Christ in the earth. And Paul wants the Corinthians to be known for their generosity. They, they have the ability, he says. I mean, these are successful, wealthy people. They have means. They have the ability. He's trying to unlock their willingness. And I would say... A lot of parallels between the Corinthian church and our church. We have a unique place in the city, I think. And I want us to steward that well. I really do. I want us to be ready for that. So in chapter 9, we learn that Paul's writing because there's persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. And what's happened is, is it's, uh, the Jewish religious leaders have really kind of come down on the church. It's created financial crisis for the church. There's this great need that's erupted. And, uh, and I would say this is also true for our church. So as we turn 10 years old, our role's going to change. We probably are transitioning. We're probably in, the, in a process of transitioning into a resourcing and sending church. And so our ability to be generous to the churches we plant and the ministries we partner with will be, will be crucial to our 50-year vision of ministry in Winter Haven. In fact, we've done so well in our first uh, 10 years of doing that, of funding and sending things out that don't have anything to do with this place, that the irony is, is that's what's happened to us is as we've, as we've engaged this way uh, financially, it's created some leanness for us. And I love that, by the way. I love that. We're living by faith. And so Paul's saying... He's saying to these Corinthians, you have a unique place 
because of your means, because of your, uh, your energy, and because of your, you know, uh, all of the things that, that you're good at. You have all of the ability to do this, but we need to talk about your willingness. And so Paul's trying to unlock their willingness. But notice for a second, okay? Notice that, that this is a passage about charitable giving and generosity, and there's absolutely no mention of the tithe. So if you're not a Christian and, you know, you've never been around the church, so a lot of the ways that we typically talk about money in the church is we, is we talk about this issue of the tithe, which was, uh, it's a, you know, a biblical principle. And, and so most of the time we, we, we do that. Most of the talk is, revolves around the tithe. And it's a positive and it's a negative thing. Let me explain. Positively, I think, uh, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, teaches the principle of the tithe. And here's what the tithe means. It means that everything, not just 10%, everything belongs to God. And the way you show God that and remind yourself of that is you set aside 10% of everything and you give it to him. So you have Deuteronomy 14, you have Malachi 3, which says that if you fail to tithe, you're robbing God. And, you know, it's pretty strong language in some of these places. And so the tithe was used to support the Levites, which were one of the 12 tribes. And when the people came into the land, the Levites did not get a portion of the land from which they could, you know, raise crops and make a living for themselves. They were dependent upon uh, the support from the other tribes of Israel. And so the tribes would gather all their stuff and they'd give 10 percent to the to the Levites, and it was the Levites' job to care for the nation spiritually and to maintain the places of worship. And, and so there's some obvious parallels to pastors and church buildings and all those kinds of things in the New Testament. So I do think there's value in, uh, in, in doing things that way. But there is also a negative side. And negatively, I think that emphasis on the tithe usually becomes legalism about the tithe. And here's what I mean. I have two concerns. First, it brings works righteousness back in. Okay, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you know, I, I want you to, I, want, I, hope, I hope you hear the gospel this morning, even though this is our topic. And here's one of the things I would say to you. Uh, you'll hear people talk about the tithe as if it's the clue to unlocking God's favor, right? If you give 10%, then God will cause you to prosper. And if you don't, he's going to send locusts and they're going to eat everything and it's just going to, your life's going to be destroyed. And then they pass the plate, right? Huh. <sighs> The truth of the gospel is that God does not treat you according to your giving record. Let's be clear about the gospel. Titus 3, 5 says, Paul says, God has saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God relates to us not on the basis of, uh, of what we have done or what we don't do, but on the basis of who he is and what he has done. That doesn't mean you shouldn't feel guilty, Okay. If this is an area of disobedience in your life, my friend Timo Strawbridge and Lakeland, he said, it's good to feel guilty if you are. <laughs> That's a good thing. The problem is with a lot of us, we feel guilty about things we aren't. So don't bring, don't bring works righteousness back in. Don't think, oh, my life's falling apart. If I could just figure out how to give a tenth, then everything would go smoothly after that. Eh, it doesn't work that way. But the other thing that I have a concern about with this is that a lot of times legalism quickly becomes minimalism. And what I mean by that is as long as I'm giving God his 10%, he'll leave me alone. It's like the IRS, right? I got to give them what they tell me I got to give them, they'll throw me in jail. But if I give them what they say I've got to give them, then the rest is mine and I can do whatever I want to with it. Well, God says give 10, so I'm going to give God his 10% and then he'll leave me alone and I can spend the other 90% however I want to. And the command to tithe is a reminder Remember what I said, that everything belongs to God. The tithe is not the rule for Christian generosity in the New Testament. Paul doesn't 
mention it in this appeal to the Corinthians. And the reason uh, is, is not because he expects any less of us. Uh, in light of the generosity of God and the gospel, the tithe is not nearly radical enough. And so there are promises attached to tithing in the Bible, not because it is a legalistic rule that unlocks God's generosity, but because it is an, a prescription for, for health and flourishing. You, you, no matter who you are, you were made, you were made in the image of God. You were designed by God in your humanness to be overflowing like he is. And if you want to be spiritually healthy, you need strategies for being generous with your time and with your talents and with your treasures. Uh, and the tithe is a good strategy. It's a benchmark for spiritual health. Now, let me give you just a couple more statistics. Only 1%, get this, this is crazy. Only 1% of families, according, this is according to Christianity Today and some other think tank people that, that, that do, some, do some of this stuff. And this is 2018, so it's up to date. Only 1% of families making over $75,000 a year give 10% of their income to charitable causes. However, 77% of people who tithe actually end up giving between 20 and, uh, 15 and 20% of their income away. Think about that. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it means that you need a strategy. You have to be proactive. Uh, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send something out in this next week that kind of outlines some of the things that, that our family does and some practical ways that we can get about doing some of these things. You have to have a strategy. And secondly, tithing is a great strategy. It's a great place to start, but it's not the finish line, okay? It should be, it should be the short-term goal of your giving, and, and it's, it's our goal for you as leaders too. But uh, thirdly, we talk about the tithe, but that doesn't mean that the tithe needs to all go to the local church. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. Full disclosure, okay? Full disclosure, I would hope that you would give to other ministries beyond Redeemer because the kingdom goes way beyond our ministry. You with me? Amen? That's, you got, I mean, we believe that. We believe that. And you've done an amazing job at that. And like I said, pointing you to that has created some, some leanness for us. But, but if you don't, so if you don't give to this church, please consider doing it. Because in the last three to five years, we've, here's some of the things we've done. Think about this. We've planted a daughter church, Redeemer Southwest. We've launched a comprehensive citywide mercy ministry, Heart for Winter Haven. We've started a church planting initiative that's going to plant 20 churches in the next 20 years, Lord willing, by God's grace. We've sent the Ellswicks to Nicaragua as a missionary couple from our church. Almost, you know, 50% of their, of their support came from this place. And now, we just last week sent Wade and Ali Savant uh, to, uh, to Czechoslovakia. I mean, and, and we have an emphasis on mercy ministry towards family, families in need in our church that is absolutely astounding if you could see behind the curtain a little bit. You've done all of that. Isn't that amazing? And we want to continue to be outward faced, but we've been neglectful a little bit of our general fund and our building because we've been so excited about what God has us doing in the city and all over the world. And so we need your help with that. That's why we're kind of coming back a little bit and saying, okay, we have some things we got to take care of. And so I'm changing the way I do some of my giving, uh, largely because of some of the things I see here. And I hope you'd have an open mind too. Now, let me get away from this, okay, because I don't like that part. And because you ought not to be motivated by what I say anyway. I thought you'd chuckle at that. You shouldn't. That's not where generosity comes from. Look here, verse 7. Paul calls... All of this grace, it's a grace. And that word, he says, excel in this grace. That word means gift. 
which means it comes from God. It's supernatural. It's not a line item in your family budget. It's not mechanical. It's, it's something God works in you. It's a way that you dance with the Spirit as the Spirit leads you. That's what that word means. And so Christianity, Christian generosity is, is a grace in two ways. It is a grace in the extent uh, to which we're called to give and in the motivation from which we're called to give. And so when I say extent, I didn't print this part of the text, and I wish I did. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have a Bible and you could look just back a couple verses... In verses 1 through 3, Paul uses the Macedonian churches as an example. And the reason he uses the Macedonian churches is because the people were poor. Unlike, they, were the, they were the antithesis of the Corinthians. They did not have means. There was not a good economy there. It was, it was just a place of deep poverty. And yet he writes of these people in affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, verse, this is 1 through 3, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, listen, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us for the favor of taking part. That's an amazing statement. I mean, that's, that's a much better description of the extent of Christian generosity than the tithe. Look what he says, beyond your means, of your own accord, with gratitude that you just get to be a part of something that's so great. Isn't that amazing? That's a gracious heart. There's grace at work there. So Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon on this topic. He's the great Puritan um, theologian and pastor in New England in the, in the Great Awakening. He, and he said um, that the gospel really, if you think about what Christian generosity is, he says that the gospel really demands that we give until it hurts. That you, The way you know you're getting close to the kind of life and to the kind of, of generosity that Paul's describing here is when it starts to hurt, when you start to feel it. When, when your generosity to others creates leanness for you. I mean, we haven't even gotten to 2 Corinthians 8 9 yet, which is the crown jewel of the text. I mean, yeah, it's astounding, isn't it? Paul says that in that verse, Jesus was rich and he became poor in his self giving love. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the king of heaven, right? Heaven makes Wakanda look like a slum, okay? Pop, pop culture reference. I'll explain it later if you don't get it. I mean, Jesus, the king of heaven, became poor. Try to wrap your head around that for a minute. How's that happen? There was a cost. It hurt. It created poverty. And the whole point of this text is that our generosity should be the echo of the generosity that Christ has shown to us. So the church is a supernatural community of people who impoverish themselves through generosity. You experience leanness emotionally, less margin in your schedule, but also financially. It hurts. You feel it. Okay? That's what we're being called to here. Now, that doesn't mean you go from here and you clean out your savings account. Don't be dismissive of the text by jumping to those kinds of ridiculous conclusions. Be wise. It's so that's a way of saying, ah, this, I'm, you know. Here are my questions. Does your giving ever cause a fight with your financial advisor? I mean, if you have a financial advisor, do you know you're kind of like the Corinthians anyway, right? Kind of like third, you know, first world problem type thing, you know? Hashtag, do you give to the extent where your guy calls you up and says, you know, hold, let's slow this down a little bit. I know some people that do, and I love it. 
Do you ever go without something you want so that you can provide for something someone else needs? You know, Jeff's trying to raise money for this church, the building they're wanting to build over there. And I said, you got to go tell them, guys, you don't get to go on vacation this summer because we got a church we got to buy. Heck no. But do you ever feel it? Does it ever hurt? And I would just say to you as kindly as I can, if not, you're not quite there yet. So that's grace to the extent, because there's this supernatural extent of people just radically, radically giving to the cause. Uh, but also it's grace because of the motivation from which it comes from. The, these people that Paul's trying, he's, he's describing them, uh, the Macedonians, he's describing the Corinthians, he's trying to get them there. And, and he says there's this, there's this ability to be internally compelled by joy. So look at verse 8 again of chapter 8. Paul begins with the whole thing. This is my favorite part. He says, I say this not as a command. Isn't that great? He said, I'm not telling you what to do. You don't, need to, you don't need to do this just because I'm telling you what to do. He wants their generosity to come from a deeper place. He wants them to be, he's trying to get them motivated at deeper levels in their lives than just, you know, the Apostle Paul said we should do this, and if we don't, God's going to send the locusts, and they're going to devour our house, and so we better do this because, uh, you know, and we're scared to death of God, and I'm leveraging my authority, right? Paul, Paul's leveraging his authority as a mouthpiece of God to get these people to do what he wants. He says, no, 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 that's not what this is at all. I'm not talking about that. I don't say this is a command. And then he goes on to use this language that's just beautiful. He talks about in 8.5, a willing gift, not, a, not an exaction. 9.7, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver, he says. He wants their joy, see? Generosity is a grace because uh, part of what is supernatural about it is it's motivated by the Spirit working in the heart, an abundance of joy overflowing and a wealth of generosity. Think about that phrase an abundance of joy overflowing in a wealth of generosity. I mean, no drudgery here, no external exaction. There's internal gratitude and joy for what God has done for you. And so that, that's way more important to God, we're being told here, than the amount that's on the check. And God has the power to do that in you. Think about that. Is that a miracle? That our culture, given as we are to to the idols of materialism, that the Lord has the power to so work in our lives that he makes us so abundantly joyful that we overflow with generosity even when it creates leanness for us. That's a miracle. It's a grace. And it's what we need him to do among us. I need him to do that in my heart. I don't know about you. And so how does that happen then? Let's just finish with this. One last thing. How do you get a heart like that? Where does the power for that kind of generosity come from? What's Paul pointing us to uh, to get us there? Because that really is where we want, to, we want to end. Let me just have a few things to say here. Well, the one thing is, is you have to know the obstacles that stand in the way. And it's important to notice how Paul goes about motivating the Corinthians. Okay, he doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say there's a rule and you're not obeying the rule and shame on you. Right? I hear, is that the buzzing of locusts I hear? Right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, and then we want to focus on 8, 9 for just a minute. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He reminds them of the gospel. Why? Because that's their problem. They've forgotten the gospel. I mean, you have to know the grace of God to you before you can experience the grace of God in you. Paul doesn't shame them. He doesn't make them feel guilty. He doesn't give them more information. He aims at their hearts. 
he, he's trying to fire their gospel imagination, and that is because most of the time, the problem is not that we don't know what we're supposed to do. Most of us know what we're supposed to do. We know we should be generous. We just don't have the ability and the courage to do it. And so Paul doesn't go after their behavior externally. He goes after what's underneath their behavior, their unbelief. And unbelief is the root of selfishness and greed. Gospel forgetfulness. And it has two faces, pride and fear. And pride says this. Pride says, this is my stuff. It's my hard work and effort that has gotten me all this, and I can use it however I want to. And that's gospel forgetfulness. You know what I'm saying? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive as a gift? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Then there's fear, and fear says, well, if I give my stuff away, there'll be none left for me. Who will take care of me? And that's gospel forgetfulness too. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. See, the proud person takes God's prerogative for himself. The fearful person questions God's goodness and trusts himself instead. Both take the place of God, which is the essence of sin. So how do you get humble enough to act as if your stuff isn't really yours and at the same time courageous enough to believe that there will always be enough? There's only one way. You have to remember the gospel. And let me say it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Notice what Paul says there. He says, you were poor. Do you know you're poor? I'm asking you, have you forgotten that? Can I be your friend and tell you, remind you, you're not, you're really not omnipotent? Wealth gives you the illusion of omnipotence, but in truth, you can't control your life. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. You are, you are sinful and needy. You need to be rescued. And it says that Jesus divested himself of all of his wealth to save you. On the cross, he took all of your spiritual poverty, all of your sin and all of your need upon himself, and he gives to you his wealth, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his access to the Father, you get it all. When you were broke, Jesus emptied the bank to save you. Does that humble you? If you see it, if you really see it, it will. I mean, you can't read. It's impossible to read 2 Corinthians 8 9 and stay proud. No way. No way. Because he in love made himself poor. And because he did that, you know what? What the Bible says is now you're rich. Do you know you're rich? I'm asking you. Have you forgotten that you're rich? You have a Father in heaven that knows your every need, and he feeds the birds of the air, and he clothes the grass, and you are a million times more valuable to him than they are. You will never be without a single thing that is needful. Your riches cannot make you safe, but God's can. And if your faith is in Jesus, then you have it all. God will never leave you or forsake you. He turned away from Jesus on the cross so that he could confidently, I love that, he could confidently, the writer of Hebrews says, that he could confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. You're safe. If the father did not spare his son, but generously gave him for you, then there is no limit to his generosity. You will never be without what you need. So the heart, of, the heart of the gospel is the generosity of God. The mark of those who've had an encounter with the gospel then is generosity. And so let's, like Paul says, make every effort to excel in this grace. And don't just make this about money. Are you overflowing with love, with forgiveness, 
with your time and your gifts? Are you fundamentally generous? If not, I want to say something's missing. You were made to overflow with generosity just as God does towards you. If you're not a Christian, the solution to that is come to Jesus. Only his love can make you like that. But if you are a Christian and you still struggle maybe to believe, then here's the opportunity this morning. Come to this table. Psalm 23 comes in mind. If you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This table is the visible reminder of his generosity to us in the gospel, in the gift of his son. And the result is as we commune with him, we begin to overflow. That's my prayer for this time we have together. And so let's pray. Would you pray with me? So, Father, as we come now to your table in these last moments of our service, where we are lean, where we are experiencing lack, where there's a drought in our lives, I pray that you would meet us at that place, water us with your grace, and cause us to overflow with the same love and kindness and generosity to others that you've shown to us so that we might be a people who live in such a way that our lives result in thanksgiving to you, that you get glory through us, and that's what we pray. And so come, we need you to work in us. We need you to to take the gospel to these places of unbelief in our lives and in our hearts. And that's what you promised to do as we gather around this table. So come and do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Go and be generous. Uh, but as you go, know that here are these words, uh, benediction. This is what this means, that the Father's love for you, you really can rely on it. Uh, that every need you have, Jesus has already supplied it. And that the Spirit has been given to you to be inside of you, um, motivating you supernaturally towards the work God calls you. So you have everything you need, uh, and that is why you can go and radically give for the sake of the gospel as uh, God has given the Son for you. So receive these words of benediction. Uh, and, and pray that the Lord would cause them to erupt in your heart in overflowing generosity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.